Hey parents, welcome to Dear Reading Teacher, a podcast where I empower my fellow parents who want to teach their child to read and help you better navigate the early reading landscape today. I am your host and your reading teacher, Elizabeth Ford. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope today's episode with the special educator and advocate, Leroy Smith, gives you the confidence to teach your child to read and support them in the U.S. public school systems today. This is episode six, How Parents Can Advocate for an Evaluation. Today, I'm here with Leroy Smith. He is the founder and CEO of Realize Solutions, LLC. He's an educational consultant and advocate for students with disabilities and also works in curriculum design. Welcome, Leroy. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you, Elizabeth, for having me. I'm so glad to have you. Where are you coming from today? I am coming from Baltimore, Maryland, born, raised, and still live here. Awesome. What role brought you to the world of reading instruction? Um, actually, before my role, um, it started in Urban Teachers, or, or used to be Urban Teachers Center now, they're called City Teaching Alliance. They've gone through some different iterations over the years in terms of names. Um, I started as a elementary, kind of middle school, um, ELA, math, special education teacher. And that's kind of what got me started. But I really started in education because I saw how my brothers, who I grew up with, I'm the oldest of my brothers, but the two brothers I grew up with primarily, um, they just struggled so much in school and just didn't get what they needed. And even now today, as they are adults, they're still struggling um, in their lives just because of reading. And so I got into education to ensure that children would not become adults who struggled in that area to live more prosperous lives. Absolutely. Um, I didn't know that that was your why. That's so interesting mm-hmm. to learn. Um, and I'm, I, I think I can relate in terms of seeing um, adults in my life who couldn't read mm-hmm. and write um, in English and struggled um, for different, many different reasons. Um, mm-hmm. What was your relationship with books like as a child yourself? Well, well, books for me were um, a sanctuary, a safe haven. Um, I unfortunately didn't have the greatest upbringing due to the people in my life who were experiencing their own forms of trauma and trying to raise children on top of all that, which is, you know, raising children by itself is already a challenge. And then when you're trying to deal with your own trauma and raising children, it could be even more of a challenge. Um, so the library and books were my escape, it, you know, and, and I grew up in a tough part of the city where there was a lot of violence and drugs and all kinds of stuff. And so when I went to the library and read books about, you know, traveling to Argentina or going to, you know, Tanzania or someplace like that, it was an opportunity for me to escape mentally from what I was going through in my house and my community, um, to see that the world was a bigger place and had people who, look like me or did not look like me, spoke like me or who did not speak like me. And it gave me opportunity to feel more connected. Um, Cause sometimes you feel isolated when you're in a tough situation. Um, but books allowed me not to feel isolated. In fact, I felt more connected through reading and I still do. That's why I read as much as I do. And so that's what books were for me and still are. Yeah, um, I absolutely 
feel the same way. Like it was an escape for me as a child. And we grew up, my brother and I, in some tough neighborhoods as well. And the library was absolutely like known to be a safe haven. And um, I advocated to make sure I could always get to that place. I couldn't go anywhere else. There's a lot of places you can't go there. You can't go there. I'm like, oh, library though? Like you can't, can't stop me from the library. So um, I went every day. <laughs> I tried, I try to go every day, but yeah, they knew me there too. Um, yep. So yeah, I think that the, there are still children who, the, where the library is a safe place. And mm-hmm. um, I think that's important conversation to have, not today, but um, mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that up. So Lira and I were actually both trained in the same urban teachers, you know, teacher training program that I I can't even remember the newest name, but what he said earlier, <laughs> which was, I think, something pretty unique because they were training um, teachers to be general education and special education teachers at the same time. So that's something that um, I wanted to point out about our program. Um, but why did you why did you choose this dual program um, outside of what you already said about your brothers? Like, was there something that told you like this is the right way to be trained as a teacher, or you were you just like this was in front of me at the time when I was looking? Answers. Um... When I was an undergraduate at Gettysburg College, I was actually a music major. So vocal music was my judge and singing classical music and opera and jazz and anything I can get my hands on too. And so at one point I was a music education major and I thought I was going to be a music teacher, which I wound up still doing in some capacity um, when I started Urban Teachers, kind of like part-time. But I thought it was kind of presented to me at the time. It's like, here's this new teaching program that gives you more of an immersive experience being in a classroom for a whole year with a, a master teacher who, or a very experienced teacher who would be able to help you. And then there would be coaching. And it sounded more appealing to me than other alternative programs that were in Baltimore at the time for certification. And I kind of just thought it, it, it came at the right time when I you know, thought, oh, I'm just going to perform and make you know, albums and hopefully win a Grammy or something, you know, the vanity of your 20s. Right. And right. um, and I realized that, you know, through an internship I had in college working with children at a bilingual school that I really enjoyed it. And I was teaching reading there through the America Reads program. Oh, um, I did that too. I, yes, I did that program um, my senior year in college for work study. And I really enjoyed it. I had a blast. I worked with a reading specialist and um, an English language learner um, specialist with students. And so I, that was how I kind of got started. And I really wanted to continue to do it and saw the need for it. And urban teachers just happened to be there at the right place at the right time. And that's kind of how it happened. Awesome. That's interesting that um, that second language learning um, mentor and experience also drew you into um, this aspect of um, education. So my next um, question, I just wanna say a statement that 
I think we have to acknowledge, which is there used to be a heavy stigma associated with receiving special education services, but society's changing also because the law changed, right? And so services could change. Um, but why would a parent, because there's still stigma, <laughs> there's still stigma. Why would a parent want specialized instruction or what we call an IEP or individual education plan or program in the United States today? Why would a parent want an IEP for their child? Sure. So most parents that I know, because there are this this question is kind of loaded. It has a lot of different reasons. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say one motivating factor for parents or caregivers or foster parents or whomever is caring for that child wants um, special education services for that child is due to the fact that they are noticing that their child is struggling at school, maybe academically, behaviorally, maybe physically, maybe speech wise or just communicating or socializing with others. Um, that's usually the primary motivating factor for most parents um, or caring adults for their child. Um, Can other we reasons pause on that? I only want to pause because I hear you on, like, I asked you a really hard question. Thank you yeah. for answering it perfectly, like what I wanted, but I didn't, you know, <laughs> coach you or anything. Because I really think that that's why there shouldn't be a stigma, right? Like you have a concern mm -hmm. and your child's struggling in mm -hmm. the school setting. And mm -hmm. if you don't want them to keep struggling, we have to help them. And mm -hmm. this is one tool, one mm -hmm. way to help a child succeed in school. Like not that there's not other ways, but this is one way that is guaranteed to mm -hmm. students who have a disability label. Hopefully I'm not taking mm -hmm. away your thunder, but keep going. Oh, no. Okay. I was going to say that um, another reason, and I don't think advocates, we kind of talk about it, but we kind of don't. I'm a very honest person and you've known that about me for some time. Um, this happens rarely, but it does still happen. Another motivating factor is that when a child receives special education services, when a parent also applies for social security disability benefits, it is um, a qualifying event or a qualifying document to receive financial support from the federal and state government for a family. Um, often I say it's a good thing because I really think this is a bigger societal issue that perhaps parents wouldn't do that if we had a better social safety net to begin with. Um, but, you know, hey, it's if you need that support, because often parents do, because a lot of parents don't, you know, a lot of people don't know what parents have to go through, like taking your child to the doctor more frequently because they have a medically related disability. So that racks up medical expenses. Um, you know, if your child has diabetes or your child um, sometimes has a mental health related disability and your child is hospitalized and maybe your insurance doesn't cover all the hospitalization that um, social security disability benefits supports with some of those reasons. So um, that's another reason why people do it. It's not just because of the struggles that a child has in school. It's also because those struggles follow that child in the community and at home. And for a lot of parents, they need that documentation from the school, which is an easier 
way often because doc, the Social Security Administration, they're more stringent about disability claims. But if you have a special education or IEP or individualized education program or plan, it makes it easier for you to get that claim and to get qualified to get that financial support that often a lot of parents need, even for terms of like babysitters or daycare providers or aftercare providers or tutors or private tutors. It just helps with some of that. It also helps with people who have health savings accounts or HSAs. Um, when you have an HSA with your employer and your child has, a, has an IEP, it helps your employer and, and your insurance provider um, grant you certain access to other benefits you probably would not have had access to. Oh, I didn't know um, that. Yeah, so, and also for special education trust, where you kind of have money set aside for your child as they you know grow to a certain age, like most trusts do. Um, it supports with having additional monies or certain kinds of funding put in there when you have an IEP. So there are multiple benefits to having an IEP. And I always tell parents there are more benefits than there are disadvantages. Um, and to where, you know, to weigh out the cost benefit analysis, depending on what you want for your child and what your child needs. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's always so many factors. Like you said, it is a loaded question um, because there's so many factors. Um, but it starts with like, is your child struggling in school with mm -hmm. any of those, you know, things that can hinder them being successful? Um, mm -hmm. And why we send them to school? Like it's not a babysitting service. Mm -hmm. It is mm -hmm. they, we're supposed to have student uh, positive student outcomes. All right, mm -hmm. so let's move on to the next question. So, and we can answer all of these questions in the lens of literacy challenges, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Is there a possibility, if there's a possibility of a learning disability, um, why evaluate? Mm -hmm. So we're getting into... If a parent is truly like new to the process, they're just trying to understand what are you evaluating? What is happening? Right? Like they, I think mm -hmm. sometimes that word seems so logical, right? Mm -hmm. But also it's a big word when you're thinking about sending your child to school and that's not part of like the normal parent teacher conference language. Mm-hmm. So can you expand? I know that seems like such a straightforward question, but like mm -hmm. if there's a possibility of a learning disability, why why is a school evaluating what is mm -hmm. happening here? So the first thing is a lot of parents may or may not know what a learning disability is. So I do want to specify that a learning disability um, is a type of impairment that makes it more challenging to learn specific content. For example, in this case, the literacy-based um, learning disability could impact sound and letter correspondence. It can impact reading comprehension or how fluently a child reads or how quickly and or accurately they read. It could impact um, the quality of their writing or the um, kind of language conventions like punctuation, capitalization, things of that sort, spelling. Um, so disabilities just make it more challenging. It doesn't make it impossible. It makes it more challenging. Um, 
So why evaluate? I mean, it's the same thing when you go to your doctor every year. Everyone gets a checkup every year. They get an annual evaluation, hopefully. I mean, it's America, hopefully. You know, I'm just going to leave that to the side. But hopefully people are getting evaluated every year by their doctor to determine how well they're doing. Um, I like to look at it in that, that factor. I think when we think about struggles, we don't also think about the strengths. So the purpose of the evaluation is to determine strengths of your child and some challenge areas of your child. Um, your child can have strengths in a lot of areas. Um, often I've seen that children do very, very well in math or they do very, very well in reading and vice versa. And it's just one area that they really need to focus on. Um, or sometimes there are multiple areas that your child needs to focus on. So the purpose of evaluating is to determine um, which strengths or Let's use an example for a kid who has a suspected reading disability or possibly dyslexia or dysgraphia or something like that, um, that impacts a student's understanding of print language and um, auditory language and connecting the sounds to letters and um, what they see. Um, so let's say the child is struggling with putting together words that have vowel combinations like you know, O-A for the long O sound in the middle word, like toad or road. Um, it doesn't mean that they don't know other things. They might know how to say words like hey or bay. So the purpose of evaluation is not only to say, okay, my child is struggling with reading. But what part of reading are they really struggling on? Is it just, is it all of reading? Because I can tell you my experience is never all of reading. It's never the whole gamut of reading. It's usually a specific part of reading that's challenging, whether it's comprehension or phonics or um, fluency. It's usually something. Um, and it's also to say your child does this very, very well. They don't need support in that area, but here's the areas they do need support in, and here are the types of supports we can provide and recommendations. So I would say, why evaluate? I always answer that question, why not evaluate? If you don't evaluate, you're not going to know what your child is very good at doing, and you're which I think is very important. And you're also not gonna know what your child needs to support in because we don't know what your child's very good at doing. What you could do is create this ableist mindset, meaning you think that your child is struggling and that struggling is universal. So then you start saying to your child, well, of course you can't do that because you can't read. Where that's not the issue. The issue isn't that they can't read, it's they probably can't read specific sounds and specific words. Um, and so that changes your mentality as a parent and as a teacher. And even for teachers, it's important for evaluation because there are some teachers, guess what, parents, that will not believe that their child has a disability, even though your child's failing their class. They're going to think your child's slacking or they're going to think your child is doing something. It's all behavioral. It's all, they don't want to do the work. They, they are, they're bored. But it could be an underlying disability there. So the evaluation holds everyone accountable but also changes our mindset in thinking about what a child can and cannot do and wants to do. And so I always say evaluations reveal a lot about a child and it also changes our behaviors as the adults with the child. And so without that, we're just gonna keep doing what we have been doing. And you know, sometimes it's a good thing and sometimes it's not a good thing depending on the situation in the child. I think those are all super important points for parents to like process and like replay if necessary and take notes on to keep in mind. Um, and I also think that they need to keep in mind that because I'm going to just 
think of all the fears that I've heard parents say to me mm-hmm. when I've tried having this exact same conversation. Mm-hmm. And the number one thing they're going to say is like, but, you know, like once I do the evaluation, they have an IEP, right? Like, no. Mm-hmm. And this is why yeah. Leroy is saying this is that you are going to just get information from the evaluation. It is mm-hmm. information is you can you can then decide after that, and that is the process. You do decide mm-hmm. after that as a team, but you're still in charge, parents. You guys decide mm-hmm. whether um, the school even has resources to deal with what you guys mm-hmm. find out in the report. Is it worth getting um, you know, this additional plan because it becomes work for parents mm-hmm. to be part of this team, right? Like it's mm-hmm. not I signed off on it. Hit me on the other side. <laughs> you're mm-hmm. my child's gotten through all the struggles we were concerned about. Nope. You're going to be part of the team the whole time parent. And you're going to want to be part of the team. It's a blessing. Mm-hmm. You're part of the team. Um, but um, you're not committed to anything after this evaluation. Mm-hmm. It is informational. Mm-hmm. And I think it is absolutely important to get those strengths as information as well, especially if a child's struggling. So you can give Mm -hmm. them that information because they're internalizing Mm -hmm. those struggles and saying Mm -hmm. negative things to themselves. And we Mm -hmm. have to acknowledge whether they're saying it out loud to you, you, Mm -hmm. that they're saying it to themselves. Um, And so that is, that would be quality information if, if it's going to be quality information. Like if you know your assessments, they're choosing as well. Um, I also wanted to add something about evaluations Mm -hmm. that's very important for parents to know. So you have three different major types of evaluations. The one option, sorry, evaluations. One type of evaluation is the school-based evaluation, which is usually done by maybe the school psychologist or the speech and language pathologist or occupational therapist, depending on the area of need of your child. Um, or the area of concern. So that you have school-based evaluations that are done at the school to see if your child qualifies for individualized educational program or plan. Then you have private evaluations. These are evaluations that can be done by private providers. They can be your child's outside clinical psychologist or outside speech therapist. Um, They can be done, and that's usually done once again, this is America, hopefully through your insurance provider, sometimes it's done out of pocket, um, depending on the situation with your insurance and what they allow and don't allow. So always call your insurance provider first before you go and schedule a private evaluation. Even if your your provider says they can do it with your insurance, I'm telling you right now, do not listen to them. Call the number on your insurance card and make sure you have a guarantee that that evaluation is covered in your insurance. And not only that, that you get a letter from your insurance provider. I'm telling you, because I've been through this letter from your insurance provider stating that they are allowing this to occur. If you're in certain states like Maryland, you can get the Maryland Autism Waiver, which is a state-funded program. And a lot of states are doing this now, but not for every disability category which is a state-funded kind of like insurance program to help you get services and evaluations without you paying any additional thing in your insurance or giving you some money towards what you're going to pay for insurance. So you have private evaluations, you have school evaluations. 
then you have one of my favorites, which is a independent educational evaluation. That is when you do not agree and you have to say, I don't agree in writing because otherwise it's not valid. Everything you got to do parents is in writing when these things are coming up. Um, if you don't agree with the school-based evaluation and you want a second opinion because you don't agree with it, you can get an independent evaluation. Every school district is supposed to give you a list of evaluators that they already have pretty much partnerships with that are private evaluators. So they were supposed to give you a list. But you can still choose your own evaluator regardless of the list the school district gives you to give you a second opinion. The school can either accept that evaluation or not. So, okay, so that's very important. Um, just because you got the independent evaluation doesn't mean the school's gonna accept it. Just because you have a private evaluation doesn't mean the school is gonna accept it. So it's very important to understand that you have those three major types of evaluation. But remember, at the end of the day, you can agree to any of them or you can disagree with any of them. You have that power. But I will also say that the school district can agree to any of them and they can also disagree with any of them. So this is a true team effort. That's why it's called the IEP team because it's a team effort with all the people involved with supporting your child because it can either get the evaluation moving and grooving or it can sidetrack you a little bit. So you got to know the three different types and to know that both you and the school district has the power to agree or disagree on those evaluations based upon the information that you see within it or that they see within it. And I don't want parents to be concerned about like a mastering this process because the process is explained in so many different formats. Like mm -hmm. we're going to explain in this podcast, but in other places and you just replay the process when you get to that stage. It's not like mm -hmm. anyone expects parents to memorize the process. It is mm -hmm. a process, which is why we're having this episode. Um, and I want to say that really to go back to original analogy, Leroy, I think was perfect. This is just like if you were looking for information on why your child's mm -hmm. having a health struggle and you have a mm -hmm. team of providers, mm -hmm. right? Different kinds mm -hmm. of doctors. You can agree with what they say. You can get a second opinion. You have mm -hmm. to talk to the insurance and make sure everything's covered mm -hmm. and double check. And it's the same thing, except mm -hmm. there is a, um, I think a documentation aspect that is a little bit more important in this realm of mm -hmm. the public school world, which we're talking about, um, if we didn't say that to be clear, public school mm -hmm. world in America, um, mm -hmm. then maybe families and parents would feel like initially getting um, mm -hmm. or needing to document on that level in the medical mm -hmm. world. The other important thing for families who, um, if you're listening to this and your first language is not English, it's maybe your second or third language, you can get your child evaluated in the language that you speak at at home. You have a right to that in this country. You can get your child evaluated in any language um, that they speak. Um, Often what you will see is that providers will try to evaluate your child first in English and also in their home language and compare the data 
to see is your child's learning difficulties the fact that they're learning English as a new language or is it actually a disability? Because if they're seeing the same struggles in let's say your, your child speaks Vietnamese or Amharic or Spanish, if your child is evaluated in English and that other language and they're seeing the same struggles, they're gonna say, okay, maybe there is a disability at play. But if they see that your child's performing in the average or high average or exceptional range in their home language, but performing below grade level in English is almost always a language issue that your child needs to learn English first to access whatever they're learning, not that they actually have a disability. So that's very important to know that you can always get your evaluations in your native language. And you, there's a free website that's really good for parents. It's called the Parent Center Hub. It's, um, yep, it's a federally funded um, website in the United States, and they give free trainings throughout the country. You type in your zip code, you can find a training for yourself as a parent. They have webinars, they have step-by-step -step processes to, from the evaluation stage all the way through monitoring progress with um, your child. So again, you don't have to memorize this process. Nope. We're just talking you guys through, talking about some of the stigmas, being honest, and um, trying to simplify how you think about it. You take the big mm -hmm. words out of it, but also explain them. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, so let's keep it going. So when do you think thinking literacy, it is too early to evaluate? Because this is like the debate mm -hmm. right now, right? There's laws that are on the books, just pass on early literacy mm -hmm. interventions. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on it? Um, from the for, for a parent to think about? Mm -hmm. The first thing I think about is, um, I always say as early as possible, the first indicator of literacy is speech and language development. So it's, it's the speaking and listening skills. If you have a child who is struggling to hear things, maybe they have hearing loss, maybe they're having developmental delay with hearing or just speaking to you and, you know, what you would see as developmental milestones, and we'll get into that later um, with the, the graph. Um, developmental milestones are just pretty much things that we should expect to see in a child who's usually typically developing based upon a group of kids at the same age. Doesn't mean all kids develop the same way. It's just that we've seen more times than not for like when you take the mean or the average of kids at that age range. Um, so if your child's not speaking to you at all by the age of two, to me, that's your first sign that there's going to be a literacy issue. If your child's not trying to request things from you at two or say, no, mommy or daddy, I don't want that by two, immediately start thinking about evaluation. I don't like waiting. Uh, people in the past say, well, we need to be around six or seven years old. To me, that is way too late from a person who's taught um, elementary, middle, and high school, I have almost, I can guarantee you every kid I've taught that had a reading or writing-related disability that was a first evaluator around seven years old, they almost never exit their IEP by their by the time they graduate high school. Because the goal is that the IEP is in place as a temporary solution to get your child back where they want to be and where we want them to be. It's not a long-term thing. So that's why some parents, you probably don't want to get your child on the IEP because you think, oh, they're going to be on it forever. 
no, it's not meant to be designed that way. It's meant to be something a short time. I've had kids who've been an IEP for only three years and then they didn't need it anymore. They were perfectly fine after that. They didn't need any like extra support that they wouldn't be receiving in a class typically. So I always say, if your child's two years old and if you're speaking to them, let's use an example. Let's say um, if let's say Katie or um, Kashana, if you're saying Kashana, could you bring me your toys? And Kashana's not looking at you or Kashana doesn't bring toys, but she brings something else. Maybe she's bringing the dog food or something else or a paper. You should already be suspecting to get your child evaluated. And the reason why is because children can learn close to a thousand and two thousand words by the age of three. So on average. So if your child and toys is a is one that kids get pretty easily more more often than not. So if your child's not responding to you after you've spoken to them and you've made eye contact with them, if they look away and they're not responding, if you try to redirect them and say, get your toys, bring me your toys, bring me the cookies, bring me the food, if they are struggling with basic demands like that that you're asking of them, there's usually some kind of language delay that's going on there. Not always, but that's the purpose of the evaluation because you don't know it was a language delay. It could be the fact that it's a behavioral thing that's going on with your child. It could just be the fact that they don't want to bring you the cookies. They don't want to bring you the toys. They want to do it in their own time. They don't feel like doing that. It could be that. It may not be a reading-related disability, but Can you don't I know an example? because you didn't evaluate. <laughs> yes. And as a parent of a now seven-year-old, um, when my child was like three, she didn't respond to every request that I made. And so I thought it's either behavioral, like you mm -hmm. said, or something else. Mm -hmm. How am I to know what's going on in that little cute? <laughs> and it can be so scary to go mm -hmm. to the pediatrician and say, I think there's something wrong. You don't want to say mm -hmm. that. You're so cute. Mm -hmm. It's nothing wrong. But you know what's more scary? What's more scary is waiting too long. And right. then the problem becomes so unmanageable. It not only impacts your child's life, but it impacts the entire family and community's life. When right. you look at the vast majority, I think the Federal Bureau of Prisons in the United States did this study back in 2017. When you look at the vast majority of male incarcerated people or people who identify as male that are incarcerated in federal prisons, 62% of them would be diagnosed with some reading related or learning related disability. 62%. I so don't like the prison to pipeline terminology, but I definitely mm -hmm. think that we are absolutely by neglecting reading issues, yeah. whatever the cause, creating state dependent adults. Well, that's however, correct. That's right? Correct. That's, I think that's, that's, that's correct. One way that actually really encompasses yes. the real Everything. problem because that's it's correct. not just the 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 criminals. It's all board. across. It's all across the board line when you think about salaries and wages. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's like that in healthcare. The people who tend to have better health outcomes are those who can read the doctor documentation, um, just read the follow up notes the discharge notes. Those are people who take their medication correctly. So, it, I mean, it comes up in a lot of different areas. So thank you for you know, pointing that out, you know, to me. Um, 
I use that one because people have heard it in the past yeah, and some people are familiar with that one, but you're 100% correct. It impacts the entire society as, as a whole. But if you identify those things earlier rather than later, you can, I've seen kids in my own family and in a community that were evaluated at three. They had an IEP when they were in pre-K, kindergarten, first grade, didn't need it anymore. Graduated, went to college, never known they had an IEP ever in their lives. Um, and that's the power of it, that the earlier we can catch some of these things, the sooner we can remedy it, and the gap doesn't get so, you know, unmanageable. The gap between what we want kids to learn versus what they do is so much easier when they're younger. It's like very, very close. But could you imagine a 10th grader, you know, still learning skills that we would expect a child that's possibly a first grader to do? That's going to be stressful I, for that child. I I taught those students and, yeah. and I just would be so, and that's just a totally another soapbox, yeah. like total another one. Cause I have such strong feelings. Like I've seen high school students drop out. They're taking yes. care of their siblings. They're so intelligent. That is they correct. have absolute capability to learn how to that's read. Correct. But I know that because they couldn't read, they couldn't do anything in high school that's correct. and would just have behavior issues, but be so mm -hmm. respectful, like, mm -hmm. because at the same time, they understood what game they had lost, right? Like mm -hmm. they understood that this is not how I should be getting along with people, but mm -hmm. I'm still angry, right? Like yeah. they had that, those battles with themselves and it's just mm -hmm. so sad to watch. But to go, let's go back to the early conversation. Sure. I just want to point out because for my child, she literally had a clogged ear. It was mm -hmm. so much wax buildup in there. She couldn't mm -hmm. hear me. And mm -hmm. how was I going to know that? I don't know how to look in a kid's ear and determine yeah. issues like that. And so then we had to go Correct. to an ear, mouth. Yeah, ear, nose, and throat doctor. That yeah. doctor, to, because it was packed in there. They're like, yeah. I don't even think you should try to fix this. This is... Yeah. It was bad. And so we cleared yeah. it out and responses. Not all the yeah. time. She still was stubborn. There was still selective hearing. Yeah. But, um, I, I absolutely think it is never too early to evaluate and parents, you need to push for an evaluation as long as it's not an evasive evaluation for your child. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. information is um, how we can make better decisions as parents. Mm -hmm. We want to be better. We got to have the best information. All right, mm -hmm. so let's get to the meat. Let's pretend we have a fake student named Earl. Earl's mm -hmm. in the first grade in a public school in the United States, and it's January. Change any of the scenario you need, Leroy. But mm -hmm. let's pretend after winter break, his parents have emailed Earl's teacher that they have concerns about his slow or complete lack of progress in reading. Now what? What should the parents do? Mm -hmm. The first thing I always tell parents, maybe I have something here. I always tell parents keep some kind of journal of some sort. Um, what I suggest for parents is to do really a binder, to be quite honest, where you have each school year as you can. Like you have a kindergarten, you have an elementary school binder, you have a middle school binder, you have a high school binder. Yes, parents who have high schoolers, you need to still be checking up on your kids progress just because they're almost adults doesn't mean they still don't need you so I want to put that out there because a lot of my clients have been parents who have high school students who are getting an IP for the first time 
in high school, which is even scarier for parents when they're in high school because they are like, wait a second, my kid's going to be graduating, going into the workforce or in a college. And now this is something we have to adjust to. But I'll go back to Earl and his example with first grade. So have a journal, record what you are seeing at home, whether it's homework assignments. If you're starting to notice a pattern in a homework assignment, maybe your kid is just struggling with comprehending the directions. Sometimes that's not even a learning disability. Maybe it's something else. Maybe some executive functioning is going on, which just is in directions, but they can read the words. They just don't understand what to do to directions. That's something totally different than a learning disability or reading related disability, just to put that out there. Um, document for, I don't say for at least four weeks. So if you notice something, you know, maybe December or November, and you were noticing like there wasn't much progress and that's when you first noticed it, start saying today's date, my child struggled with the reading homework. They couldn't read the directions or they couldn't find the words or they couldn't find the nouns in the sentence or the verbs in the sentence, or they couldn't identify the sounds in the word. They couldn't clap out the syllables or they, or things like or they forgot the punctuation or they couldn't eat, or sometimes they couldn't even write the word. Maybe it was a struggle for them to write the word legibly. Um, it's like a hidden sign of a reading related disability is that they struggle with writing the words themselves, um, which gets into dysgraphia, um, which is more writing related. So I would first document it. And here's the reason why and I tell this to all my clients. Here's the reason why, because if you don't document it, it's just your word and not to say that your word doesn't matter. It helps the process when, if you agree, because you have to agree to evaluations, that's the first thing. You have to provide your consent before evaluations even begin. Because if you don't consent to evaluations, they can't do them, to be quite honest. So you have to consent to evaluation. But if you have the journal and you have notes and you then email your child's teacher, here's what I saw in November. Here's what I saw in December. Here's what I'm seeing now after winter break. That child's teacher can go, oh, I'm starting to see a pattern here with Earl's reading. Earl's really having a hard time with finding the main idea in a text. He's having a hard time with reading words with three syllables in them. That teacher can then say to the, to the school team, Earl's parents have reached out to me. They have identified some areas that he's had some struggles with. Here's what they've identified in writing to me. Here's what I've also seen as their classroom teacher while I've been teaching. And you might see the same thing. That, that teacher might see the same things. They might see different things. That's okay. The main goal is that you're seeing that you can establish some kind of pattern that's going on. Because when you have a pattern that's going on, it's going to be easier for the evaluator to know which assessments to use. Because the evaluator is not going to test your child for math word problems or things like that if they don't have an issue in that area. They're going to test for the area that you are seeing a concern in. If you're not clear about what that area is, if you say my child's struggling with all a reading, they're going to test your child for every possible thing in reading. But your child might not actually be struggling in, that, in every area. They might be struggling in just reading multi-syllable words or just put, you know, doing inflectional ending, ES or ED, ING at the end of words. They might just be struggling with comprehension. And so for Earl, in this case, I would definitely tell the parents to document what they've been seeing to see if it's a pattern. 
send an email. I would say it has to be in writing. Also, then after that, request to your school's leadership, whoever your school administrator is, say that I want to schedule a meeting to look at my child's reading progress and achievement. And I want to see if that meeting, in that meeting, when we look at the data, whether or not I want to do evaluations to see if they will qualify for special education services. So you still have to put in writing that you want that, or you can go to the school in person and speak to someone verbally, and they still have to respond to that within usually 14 days. Under the federal law, within 14 days, they have to schedule a meeting. And in that meeting, you will look at Earl's um, report card. The other thing is, you can also use the notes you put in your journal as existing data. So many parents don't do that. And it's huge because what you are seeing is just as important as what your child's school team is seeing. And often you might identify area that your school team looked over, not because they didn't have good intentions, it's because they might have 30 kids in your class because it's short staffed out here. Let's be clear that even the best of teachers with the best intentions miss things because no one's perfect. But you might just see things. If Earl's your only child, you might see things that your child's teacher will not see. And so having your notes plus all the existing data they have at the school, it will speak to each other and find the evaluations that best match to see what's going on with Earl. What are his strengths? What are his areas of concern? Okay, we have to stop and pause and let Leroy talk about this um, um, flyer that he made for parents and that mm -hmm. we will make sure that everyone has access to in the show notes. Mm -hmm. um, but um, after that, I, I, I do want, or maybe before that, to say mm -hmm. that in addition to this milestone, milestone journal, um, mm -hmm. I think you guys as parents need to keep any student work samples that come yeah. home whether you think they are applicable or not, right? Like mm -hmm. if it's in, if we're talking about literacy, like literacy related things, mm -hmm. but also honestly, if they're struggling in math, mm -hmm. but then we, what you're realizing is all of their math work is nothing but word problems, that's actually related. So I honestly would, and I think you said that like a binder mm -hmm. might even be better. Um, yeah. Your milestone journal should have notes mm -hmm. in it and your binder should have all the student work samples that they mm -hmm. send home in that, you know, time span where mm -hmm. you're collecting. Even from art class, parents do not neglect art class or music class because in art class, your kids often have to label their pictures. Mm -hmm. That's one of the earlier signs that you can find when your child has to start labeling your pictures, whether they can spell words accurately and whether or not the picture that they put on the page is the picture that they said it actually is. For example, if your child says, I drew a rocket ship, right? They say they drew a rocket ship, but they actually drew a frog. You can start to see that your child, there's, some, there's a disconnect between what they thought they drew versus what is actually there, which is also another latent kind of reading really disability. And that's what kids do oftentimes with dyslexia, they they perceive that they're seeing certain letters and sounds that are not actually in that word. They think that they're in the word, but they're not there. Often you'll see the vowel teams like O-W, they might think is W-O. They might switch around the letters. 
or AI, they might think is IA, which changes the way that that word will sound um, and how it's spelled. So it's the same thing in art class. If your child's saying that they're drawing about rocket ships and you don't see one thing resembling a rocket ship, especially in first grade, you can start to see a little bit more what your kids are drawing. Um, and if your child can't talk about their drawing, let's say that he did draw a rocket ship, Earl drew a rocket ship, but he can't say it's a rocket ship or he can't talk about the drawing and he starts making up something that doesn't seem to follow any pattern, like it starts off at one place and goes all over the place, you can start to see that he's having some comprehension difficulties with even what he's producing. Because I think we talk a lot about students decoding, meaning they can see what's in front of them and make meaning out of it. But we often don't talk about that we can also solve as reading or writing related disabilities when they're encoding, meaning that they are writing things down themselves or drawing things and cannot make sense of the things that they draw or write. So I think that's another thing as well is keep your kids samples, keep your kids uh, cards that they make you for Mother's Day or Father's Day or Christmas or whatever holidays you celebrate. Because if they are, if Earl is consistently spelling mom wrong on every card he writes to you as mom in first grade, which mom is a, is a pretty accessible word for kids to spell by the end of first grade is one syllable and it's three letters and it's not too many sounds. Um, if he's consistently spelling mom incorrectly or flipping letters around, you should really be keeping those things and bring them to the school and say, look, all this year, every every card Earl wrote to me as mom or dad has always had the, the M's upside down or always had the D's written as P's um, for dad. Um, so that's also data. Don't think it has to be homework assignments or tests or quizzes. It can also be the cards that your kid writes you or their own drawings that they have in a refrigerator. Take that thing off your refrigerator for a little bit and bring it to that meeting and show your child's um, school team that look, they're doing it consistently because you'll be able to see that way more. The patterns will be more clear that way. Yeah, and I had a guest, um, a speech language pathologist that works with students mm -hmm. with literacy challenges um, and, you know, language challenges and young, young students, usually, mm -hmm. and that's what she's saying. The research says is that there's a lot of comorbid language mm -hmm. or, you know, speech sound related. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm saying this right. Um, <laughs> disorders <laughs> and disabilities, um, mm -hmm. along with actual reading ones like dyslexia mm -hmm. so um it, they can happen at the same time and we should absolutely mm -hmm. also be inviting those speech language pathologists to mm -hmm. evaluate mm -hmm. our children who are having mm -hmm. these concerns because yes. like you said um um speech right like in concerns mm -hmm. with early speech is a sign that they're probably going to struggle with literacy because these things are intertwined these skills mm -hmm. um, there's so many, you know, inter overlaps of mm -hmm. what they use for each other. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, let's keep going. So if we're sure. looking at the document, if they could see it, step one, you talked about learning developmental milestones. Step two is keep a milestone journal. Step three, you say communicate with your child's pediatrician. Tell mm -hmm. me more. I always say communicate with your child's pediatrician before the the school team because there could be a health related thing that's going on that is causing what we might 
think is a reading or a learning disability. The Department of Education in 2014 for the United States actually said some of the greatest indicators for learning disabilities are living near areas where there's a high concentration of heavy metals, meaning lead and mercury. So if you live in a community like that, or you live close to where there's a lot of toxic smog, or if there's like um, issues with like groundwater, you know, issues that you have in your neighborhood, or you live right next to a chemical plant and the water is, you know, a little messed up. Um, also nutrition. It could be some of the, some of the foods could be, you know, making it more challenging for your child to process information because it's, it's, it's throwing off their bodies. Maybe they have too much sugar or not enough sugar or too much salt or not enough salt that's making it hard for them to concentrate. It may not be a literacy-based disability. It might just be that their nutritional levels are thrown off. However, I want to respect the fact that a lot of families feed their kids whatever they can afford. And so I get, you know, all of that. And it's hard to find good housing in America, let's just be clear. And so people just don't always have, wish it was a right, but people don't always have the luxury of living in the areas that have the least amount of contaminants around them. So that's why I say take, speak to your child's pediatrician because they, they one of the things that you should always ask for parents is a full blood test series. Because you might see that there are levels of like maybe potassium or sodium that are off in your child's blood that could be causing some cognitive difficulties or some executive function difficulties. Prime example, if you have too much sodium in your body, what it does to your mind is it clouds judgment. It makes it harder for you to retain information. So is that a disability or is it too much sodium in your diet? So that's why I say take your child to the pediatrician first because it could be a nutritional or dietary thing. Um, and they can refer you out to other healthcare professionals to see if there are other coexisting things that could be going on. Because if you go to your child's school, it could be glasses, like you said, it could be a host of things. It could be the earwax. Like you said, it happens to a lot of kids actually, it just could be earwax buildup. Um, that's what I'm saying. Like, just check with your child's pediatrician because they will document that. That will be in your child's medical records forever. And you can then give your school's child access under HIPAA access to your child's medical records or the records that are pertaining to the concerns that you have around their academic performance. Um, and that will also inform what your school team wants to do to evaluate upon. So I, I think that's a really important one that a lot of parents think that they don't have to do. They think they just have to go to the school team and get information because I've often seen this with a lot of clients and I tell them, did you go to your pediatrician? They say no. And I often see that when they do go to the pediatrician and get blood work done, there are imbalances in the minerals in the child's body. Almost always there are imbalances. And I've often seen the parents who have the privileges and the financial resources to get the child a nutritionist or a dietitian, often that solves a lot of the concerns. I'm just gonna be honest. And if the child has a learning disability and they have a nutritionist or a dietitian, I've noticed that the reading disability is not as severe with some of my with some of my former clients. And so I know a lot of people think, Leroy, you're saying that kids with learning disabilities need dietitians. I'm saying everyone needs one, to be quite honest. <laughs> in America, we all need a dietitian. Let's be clear, and a nutritionist. But 
I would say that usually there's some level of nutrition that's involved. And also a lot of people don't think about this. And I know this is why some parents don't want to get their children evaluated is because of your religious beliefs. And I want to say this because I've had parents who had varying different um, religious beliefs. Also bring up your child's concern to your spiritual faith leaders because you can actually bring in any documentation that you have had with your child's Sunday school teacher, if you're in a Christian church or whatever things that you may be, whether you're in a synagogue or mosque or whatever, or temple, you can also bring in your child's faith-based leader or faith-based teacher that they may have on the weekends or throughout the week and the evenings to come into the school meeting to also state what they are seeing in the faith-based setting because there are a lot of crossovers the disability will impact your child pretty much in every area of their lives, not just at school, but at home, the community, and your, your faith-based institutions, at a job, or wherever it may be. And so I've also had kids who are high schoolers who have reading disabilities, and it shows up at their job when they're cash register people. And guess what? Or cash register agents or whatever they may do that reading is essential for their job you know, extensively. Ask and see if their manager or employer it would like to come into that meeting with your child. I've seen it happen and it has been monumental because not only is your child getting support from you and the school team, but now your child who might be a teenager who is working is also getting support at their job to do their job even better. So don't think that it just has to be you and a school team. It could be you. It could be your cousin or your aunt, whoever babysits your child or, you know, provides care. It could be um, the, the after program people that work with your kid before school program. It could be your child's employer. It could be a faith-based leader. It could be a healthcare professional. That's not say check with your pediatrician because all those other people could miss what's going on in the blood. The blood will show up a lot of things. So start there first because all disabilities are health-related, all of them. And you can learn a lot from it and then go to the other people and kind of collect consensus around what everyone's kind of seeing because it makes it easier when you can say oh yeah by the way my child has you know high levels of glucose and maybe there's something going on there let me also put that in the mix because you can get accommodations for that as well for your child you can find Leroy on Instagram and Facebook as at Realize Curriculum Solutions all his links will be listed in the show notes And you can listen to the second part of this episode next Sunday, October 8th. Thank you for listening, parents. The purpose of this podcast is to ensure parents have a place to ask early reading questions, big or small. Every family story is valid, so please reach out if you want to share your early reading journey with us. Use the form link in the podcast description or contact me via social media. Until the next chat, happy reading, fam. 